Welcome back, guys, and thanks for listening. Before we get into the episode, you should check out Gimme Radio. It's a sick music platform geared for metalheads and fans of extreme music. I have a uh, twice-a-month DJ show called The Sacred and Profane. You'll hear anything from Vastum and Burial Invocation, to Hate Eternal, to Chromags, to Fields of the Nephilim and Godflesh, to Vintage Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. It's all fair game. Now for this episode, we have Author and Punisher. I love all the OG industrial artists like Throbbing Gristle, White House, Cabaret Voltaire, as well as some of the industrial metal artists like the aforementioned Godflesh, who are actually one of my favorite bands of all time. But I become jaded to the legion of newer artists that claim the industrial tag. Because of this, it took me a minute to find out about Author and Punisher. I'm definitely late to the game, but I'm happy I got on board. Tristan Schoen, the man behind the entity known as Author and Punisher, is a true innovator. Picking up where the originators left off, mixing in some of the danger that extreme performance artists like Mark Pauline brought to the table, and using these raw materials to build his own sound. I caught up with Tristan backstage when he was in town for a show at the Market Hotel, deep in the wilds of Bushwick, New York. One of the biggest surprises I had was that we actually knew each other for, we met, what, like 20 years ago or something like that? I think it was 98, yeah, 20 yeah. years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it was back at that studio in Gloucester, Mass., and you had that Falkirk. Falkirk, yes. Yep. And uh, you've definitely expanded well beyond the confines of what I think that band was trying to do these days. Yeah, that band was, it was, it was a good crew. It was like my first kind of like heavy band. It was a... Yeah, I guess it was like you'd call it like neurosis. Everyone likes to use the word worship these days, but yeah. I think in that time, you know, ISIS came around and 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 we were all kind of mimicking our styles after the without even really intentionally doing it. But uh, I always wanted to have the drum machine, so it was like when that band kind of broke up, it was nice to to strip away some of the members and just focus on what I wanted to do. I mean, is that <clears throat> even back then was the musical? sort of output was it more of like a singular sort of thing for you like were you pretty much guiding that whole creative effort? yeah yeah it was it was yeah I mean I, I tried to be as as uh, collaborative as I could but um, I think over time the things that I wanted to do and the kind of repetition and the I don't know there's something about industrial music and in the that uh, a lot of people don't like because of its mechanical kind of awkward nature and I kept trying to do it. Everybody wanted to loosen it up and make it more organic. And I wanted to make it like uh, have this awkward structure, you know? Yeah. So, Well, now that I have more context as to where you're coming from and who you are, and like I said, it was a shock when I walked into the venue. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you look without the beard. Because I've seen photos of you with a beard. Yep. Without the beard, you look about, you look like the same dude from 1998 or whatever oh, the hell thanks, we met. <laughs> so it's like, I'm like, wow, I remember this I don't this guy. feel that way, but well, yeah. Well, oh, dude, neither, neither <laughs> do I. But so uh, a bunch of questions arise as a result of this. So knowing that you started uh, you know, playing guitar and sort of within the DIY hardcore metal kind of you know, time you know, sort of framework, the project that you're doing now, author, author and Punisher, is you're fabricating your own musical instruments and 
putting forth this like completely like unique sound. So how does the songwriting process differ? Like, you know, there's the guitar play. The guitar is a known quantity. Okay. So when you approach the guitar and you sit down, you have like, you know, six, well, six, seven, eight strings or whatever, you know, format you're working with 12 notes in a scale and you're limited by that medium. So making that jump from working within a very conventional musical instrument structure into this sort of what I what I'm perceiving as like a, a limitless amount of media that you can work with. Like what was the evolution of that? Like how did that how did that process start? I think really what it was is when I was writing for Falkirk and the bands that I had in Boston and uh you know, you're, I was writing the songs on a drum machine. I had a little programmable, you know, SR16 Alesis with a guitar. So I would sit there and make a riff. Then you got to program the beat and then play along with it. And then, you know, I think a lot of us have done this in the past. We make our beats on a drum machine. But uh, what I really wanted to do was find a way to kind of make those two things happen at the same time. So I could be writing those riffs, but the, the rhythms were are a kind of... Uh, they should be married together. So I basically made something where I could do those at the same time. So as I'm writing those riffs, it's like you have a band together. So my right hand, I'm playing the kick and the snare and the cymbals and my left hand. So you can kind of like, it doesn't get stuck within that MIDI format. Right. You can almost be organic, but play industrial music. That was kind of, that was the goal because, you know, I see, I see industrial bands struggle with this constantly. Right. They've got a sequence that they're playing along with. And that shit just gets away from them at some point and sounds too, I don't know. You just start seeing people looking around like, oh, yeah, this is going to repeat 25, four times right now. You sort of get lulled into that pattern, I guess. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Unless you're a great programmer and, and there's all this modular synth stuff now that they have, they do allow you to have interesting means of improvisation. But I think that's why a lot of us still don't like going and seeing those types of bands for heavier music because right. it's like, with the exceptions of Godflesh and Youth Code and some other, I'm leaving some out, of course, Death Grips and stuff like this, but um, I think industrial music and EBM in general lacks that organic element. Um, maybe that's a broad statement, but. <clears throat> so the, the, the percussion, the rhythm, the, the beats in this project that you're doing now, um, like do you do that like within like a software program or are you with yeah. machine? Okay. So basically I used to do strictly software. So I make these controllers that are hardware controllers, just like a synthesizer controller or like an Ableton push. You've seen these things yeah. like that, but I didn't want to press buttons or turn knobs. I just wanted things to be more tactile sliding stuff as a mechanical engineer, you know, like lathe and mill. Yeah. Those things feel good. You know, they've got, when you're, when you're cutting something on a, a mill and you feel the resistance in the knob, and you you know that gears are meshing, and and, and I feel like that's a that 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 interaction is a meaningful interaction, you know, almost like holding like a heavier Les Paul custom or something. Um, so for me, yeah, I wanted to make not just pressing a button to control the drums, but something really heavy that contacts something that feels like it snaps into place or whatever, you know. I don't know if I have achieved that, but I achieved something that feels pretty good, you know. Uh, encoders buttons, potentiometers coupled with a microcontroller that communicates with software or a drum machine. Right. And then I trigger a kick, a snare. Uh, yeah, could be hardware synth or software. So let's take one step back. Cause yeah. um, you, you and I both share one thing in common. 
that we both are grads graduates of the mechanical engineering program. Various. I'm not sure what college you went to. I went to Rensselaer. Okay, Polytech. RPI. Yeah. Yeah, RPI. I went to Boston University. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. So, for anyone out there who's not necessarily familiar or has never seen Author and Punisher, all of the musical equipment is stuff that you've custom manufactured, right? Right. Now you've applied your mechanical engineering background in a very creative way. Okay, so now, do you hand these designs off to a shop or do you have a shop that you fabricate this stuff yourself or? I used to do, when I was in art school essentially, I mean back in RPI they taught us how to machine. Okay. My dad worked in companies so he'd bring home all these components from like robotics stuff. But then uh, when I got back to art school after working for five years, I think about this when I was 25, this was probably the year 2004, I, uh, I sort of, they had a machine shop in the art department. Okay. So I was able to basically start building these things. Oh, wow. But then when I was out of art school and I built the first set of instruments, I didn't have access anymore, so I bought some stuff. Okay. But now after moving studios three times, I'm sick of having it. So I, now I just pay to have people make them. You know, if okay. you're good at designing them yeah. and you pay donuts and pizza and enough of these machinists, you get shit made for cheaper. So you, you actually come up with like a, a, a you do design in the three-dimensional space? Exactly. Yeah. SolidWorks uh, uh, mainly is what I use, or Rhino and or stuff like this. I also build the speaker cabinets that I use. I don't take those anymore because they're also a huge pain in the ass to move around, and nicer clubs have better sound systems. So, um, But, yeah, CNC routing, CNC mill and lathe work uh, to make all the parts. Yep. Man, that's fascinating. Yeah. Because like, I've, I've never seen you perform live, okay? I've seen videos. And I look at that whole process of what goes on on stage, and I think about what kind of mindset has, that you have to have to create these devices. So was there any sort of uh, template or blueprint that you might have seen prior to this to come up with this design? Because they seem completely like, unique and sort of original. Man, the things I was influenced were, I don't know if you know Survival Research Lab. Absolutely. I was thinking SRL yeah. is def except you guys, you don't blow things up and burn things. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of people couple that with kind of like a Burning Man world because I think that stuff's way gnarlier. Well, just, just to interject real quick, that's Mark, Mark Pauline. Yeah. And he was definitely way ahead of his time with this stuff. And, like, that, he's more out of, like, the 80s kind of, like, throbbing gristle, like, yes. industrial culture anyone who might have read Research Magazine or something like that, there was that whole movement of people from like the 80s and late 70s, and Pauline definitely falls within that. So that's something that you, you definitely were... Definitely influenced by. And, you know, yeah, they were like preceded battle bots by, you know... Uh, and, and I'm glad that that's now a thing, you know, like maker culture with 3D printers and just the fact that it's so much easier to make... Uh, DIY robot now with the software and the microcontrollers that they have in the online community that's pretty much I, I did not find anyone who was making stuff like I was making people make MIDI controllers though yeah. have been making them for years and you know like these power gloves and sliding touch pads and I, it's the same thing so the stuff I made uh, everybody's been they've been making these for years mine are just a little bit more industrial and and I think just because you don't see them in the genre that I'm in, uh, it's mostly a computer music yeah. thing, which is more of an academic, uh, you know, festivals and uh, Transmedia Ale is a festival, Ars Electronica, these kind of European, really uh, new media art festivals. You'll see this stuff more. See, I think in a weird way, though, um, <coughs> industrial music 
has kind of come full circle because like maybe because I'm a little bit older than the typical like music listening listener out there but you know back in the day there was like Throbbing Gristle and like Onsters and Neubauten yep. and Zev and all these guys who actually made their own you know instruments with like uh, you know they mic them up themselves and they handle all the electronics and then that sort of got modeled into software right and then now we're going back to actually having more of a tactile experience yeah you get the new button plug-in for your electron drum machine or whatever because I, I don't even know how to use a drum machine yet I can program drums in logic right you which is fine I mean? you know I don't the, I think there's a I hope DIY culture becomes a bigger thing in this scene because Everybody's obsessed with modular synths now to the point where people are really uh, uh, kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, arrogant about their synth that they use. It's the same as the kind of the, the, the heads and the amps that they use. And man, sometimes you hear the best shit that's made from the worst, you know, the worst types of uh, amps and guitars. And I, I think I love when someone makes something totally rad and they use like Cakewalk or something like, Fruity Loops, you know? Yeah. Oh, and they're just creative. Around, they're yeah. just like, they're good music makers. And they didn't have enough money to buy the best modular components. Uh, well, at the yeah. end of the day, it's what it comes down, down to is, is like what you're actually trying to accomplish with yeah. all this equipment. And if the ideas aren't there and the sort of statement and the sort of emotion isn't there, then it's just kind of like, like a, a term that you used, academic, which yeah. is like, okay, we're executing this this process or whatever and this is what it ends up sounding like that's a that was a that was a tough thing to do is basically say at what point do i take this and say let's stop making it making it more technical for the sake of it being technical like that's a that's a problem that i think can easily you know you you see people with really complicated guitar setups and i think it's like you know, at the end of the day, you got to make a performance that works. And mm -hmm. so I've had to, like, kind of cut my system down, I would say, much to the uh, dismay of some of the fans because they want to see the big stuff that I have and the most ridiculous setup, you know. They just want to see they want to see you struggle on stage. And I've found that I really have to dumb it down to have a better performance. Like, really keep it simple, you know. You don't need that much. Uh, anyway. That's awesome. I man. like the idea of a bass player and a drummer. That was always my ideal band. So I feel like I'm kind of trying to do the same thing. You know, just simple drums, one bass line, vocals. Now, let me ask you a question about touring and all this equipment that you have. <laughs> and how, how hard or easy is it to be on the road with this equipment? You know, does it pack up into a nice case and you put it in the van and drive away and is everything cool? Or I've, I've definitely gotten to the point where... Um, it got to be too much because I was, I was, like I said, taking too much gear, taking a sound system. I built my own, like, folded horn subwoofers and three-way towers, and they had amp rack and all the cabling and setting that up every night. And, uh, and then, in addition, I had this 300-pound disc, and it was my first set of instruments that I built in college. It was my, actually my a master's thesis. Too heavy. John, the sound guy who's here tonight, will tell you, I mean, we destroyed ourselves. I mean, just... Stairs like this, oh, yeah. elevators broken. There's only 30 people at the show. Uh, so I basically decided that and I couldn't fly to festivals in Europe. You know, they're not going to. Oh, pay. yeah. You got 300, like a thousand pounds of equipment to take on a plane with you and you can't rent a back line. So, yeah. It's yeah. Like, no one's going to fly you into a festival unless you're like uh, Neurosis at their 30th year anniversary road burn. They might pay for it. I doubt it. But um, anyway, yeah. So I basically decided, OK, three cases, 50 pounds each. 
uh, was the gear, and then I'll backline all the speakers. You know, learned kind of through touring, like learned about what you can do there. You know, oh yeah, you can you can rent these things. They'll cost this much out of your fee, and um, like certain tables that so the stuff doesn't shake. You know, if you ask for a table, they give you a folding yeah, banquet table. Yeah, this is no good. So I found these German ones that are like really solid what they build stages out of Germany. And then I ordered those and had them shipped here and just, and then they pack into a case and, you know, we're in a sprinter now and no trailer. And, um, what kind of crew do you really, so obviously a sound guy, sound guy, merch guy, merch guy. Cause I'm breaking down gear for a while. And I just, I have so many wires and buttons and custom gear to think about during the set that I can't like, I, I, I can't do much else, you know? You know, after I'm done playing, I have a few beers and I'm cooked. You know, yeah. I just want to. But um, I would like. I used to bring a video guy because all my gear would also trigger lights and video. Sure. Um, we actually now I'm controlling the lights from my rig. Okay, I was uh, going to ask you about that because I know yeah. that's a, that's available too these days. It is available. It's 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 more stressful. To, it, I, it, and on paper, it looks great. You know, I'm going to control these lights with my rig, but. You know, that's that's a lot of cabling. That's a lot of things coming out of one computer that can that can die. And you're using a laptop, right? You don't using have one some... laptop. Yeah, with the DMX, I use a laptop with a sound card, and then the the sound card. Um, my laptop also controls a couple of uh, synthesizers, hardware synths. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're getting better at like that kind of interface now. Um, so I would prefer to have a video lights person too. That's um, a lot of that's a taxing load to put on the CPU, man. I think of trying to do it all on one laptop like that. With in a perfect world, it works, but yeah. I have had some moments where, like, you know, maybe the MIDI on one of the controllers gets caught in some loop and it's just firing off, you know, kilohertz MIDI signals, and you can't stop it, and you got to reset the instrument, and everything goes to hell. Have you have you had <laughs> problems like that before live? Or you been pretty fortunate in general? I've been pretty fortunate. There's glitches. There's like shit that'll happen, like where. Yeah, like, oh, the lights get caught in, like, a strobe, and I just can't shut it off, and I got to crawl under the table and turn it off, and there's no lights, and the lighting person went for a smoke, so it's dark on stage for, like, but I definitely had one instrument in Brussels, I owe them a show in Brussels, uh, where after 20 minutes, uh, the the wiring inside got caught and just broke, and there was no way it was going to get recovered. Damn. Um, But sold good merch, people appreciated it, I... I apologize. I talked to fans for 20 minutes. We just hung out. That was in uh, Europe? It was in Europe. Yeah. Um, very critical people in Europe generally. Yeah. I mean, they just they <laughs> hate when things don't work. And you're like, you don't know what I go through to make this happen. But yeah. they're uh, – but surprisingly, it doesn't – I've gotten to the point where you probably have the same thing. You just do the same thing every night. Yes. You check the same things. You don't change anything. You don't get too drunk. Yeah, it's like it's funny when you talk about the the process of setting up and breaking down. It's like I forgot there was this movie with Ben Stiller where he would would um, drill his family for for like you know in case there was like some sort of an event an emergency, and they would like have this like procedure they did every time he drilled them. He wake up in the middle of the night, put on these jumpsuits, run outside. Everyone had their police. Royal Tenenbaums. That's it. Yes. Yeah. And that's kind of like how I feel like being in a band that t- tours, you're setting up and breaking down procedures or like if everything has its place, you have it broke, like just burned into your muscle memory on what to do every night. Yeah. But in your case, since you're one guy and you have all these connections to make, it's probably even worse, I imagine. Getting everything pa- yeah, patched. I love that example, though. It's like it's your crew, too. And like they almost got to be like, you know, like it's like a faithful, you know 
pack of dogs. You're just all like, get there, you get your shit done, and then you have fun later, you know? Yeah, totally. But they like it. You want to have crew members that really like that because you create a positive environment. And uh, and once you find those people, you, you hold on to them because... Yeah, it's a um, process of finding the right people, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I love that. <clears throat> so I think I read somewhere... Um, about your music being influenced by cinema and uh, it definitely has a cinematic quality to it. So like what sorts of films or directors or filmmakers sort of influences your music? I think, uh, I mean, there's a lot of obvious ones that I'm not really into much like the horror. I think I'm much more into like the psychological um, (laughs) traumatizing films, you know, like Like Von Trier or something like that. And uh, I'm also into like a lot of, I like the early Nicholas Weiningreffen films like Pusher, like these kind of, a lot of this like gangster stuff. That's, oh, that's that Danish film. The Danish it had film, uh, yeah. Mads Mikkelsen was in that. Yeah, right? yeah. Like the mm-hmm. their first three, they're they're kind of, they're kind of gnarly. And then like the old Suzuki like, um, uh, gangster flicks, the Japanese guy and Melville, these kind of like noir, uh, films. I don't know, just this this kind of like. This lonely, painful Bellatar. Okay. Uh, what's the one with um, like Melancholia? Oh yeah. The that's more, not Bellatar. That's 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 Lars Von Trier. Yeah. Just like super painful. And my girlfriend or my wife now, after 14 years, when I say my girlfriend at the time, she got me into this stuff, and I had. She comes from a much darker place than I could ever hope to. You know, she came from Brazil and just kind of, you know, had some tough times immigrating to the U.S. and you know, she she's like, I'll show you what darkness is. You know, like it's not about this kind of uh, gore horror stuff at all. That shit's cheesy. It's about like this real dark stuff. Yeah, like an emotional. Sort yeah, of. it was a Bellatar. It's um, not Wreckmeister Harmies. It's the last one he made. It's basically about the end of the world. It's just it's just so bleak and taxing. And I just kind of equate some of those feelings to the to the kind of more bleak droney stuff that I used to do. I wouldn't say that I make music like that anymore like the long droney maybe influenced by like melvin's lysol album you know when i was listening to that stuff or like i loved seeing sun um and now i'm a little bit more upbeat about the music that i make but at the time i think that that uh bleak that bleakness was 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 something i definitely was into but yeah, the, the new album definitely has, like, there's a lot of melody on it, too. I mean, there's a lot of melody, I, yeah. I pick out uh, Nazarene as uh, a song that sort of demonstrates uh, the combination of, like, this very caustic beginning, and then there's, like, like a, a chorus in yeah. the song. And the chorus is, like, you know, a long, like kind of shoegazy sort of chorus. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, but the emotional, con- like, you talk, we talked about Von Trier, and you mentioned Melancholia, and the other film about the end of the world and i think those types of films it's not so much the horror of the end of the world but it's like the uh the self-reflection that you have on your life about well there's a i know when the end is it's coming in like a few hours or days or whatever and the self-reflection and the sort of malaise that one might have thinking about the things that you might have done or didn't do and all that and that is kind of the sense i get from especially the new album man it's like you know, there's like there's definitely ups and downs on the new record. Yeah, know? I feel like there's like a little bit of hope. I mean, I, I always, the thing is, is it, as much as I'm into that stuff, like if, 
like here's a, here's an example of what I watch more than film now. Like if I'm really like if I've got a free free time at the end of like this tour and I'm home by myself, I'll watch Frontline. And I don't know if you've ever watched Frontline. And like the the names of those episodes are like the most depressing things you could <laughs> ever. It's like there's one uh, one called Poor Kids. You know, there's another one called like. Um, rape on the night shift i mean they're just it's just like the most bleak stuff but you meet these people throughout the episodes who are kind of like you know that are just that are struggling in such dire circumstances you know so there's it it is it's basically like it's like doom metal you know like it's it's really bleak but then there's like mike scheidt's voice comes in and and just makes he comes up with these melodies over this like bleakness that are just like oh okay that really is cool you know um that's yeah. a, that's another great example too, you know, of uh, of Yab, you know, Yab sort of demonstrating the same thing in a little bit more of a conventional sort of context. Yeah. Yeah. So your name appears on um, in in production credits on these records. Okay. So, uh, what what is recording like for this type of project? Do you do a lot of it yourself? Do you go to you know? There's a couple of different studios uh, listed. Um, you know, different mixers and several different hands seem to come to play in the process of making this last record. Yeah. So how does this, you know, do you... Well, I, I started out, I, I basically, there's this guy, Braden Diode, who basically was in this band Tarantula Hawk a long time ago. Yeah, it's like a Neurot recording. Neurot band, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of instrumental, and he's just, a, he's a guy who I met when I first moved to San Diego, and basically introduced me, once I built these instruments, he took me, intri- introduced me up the West Coast to his touring connections. This would be like Nate Carson and Joe Preston and... Uh, the terminal in Oakland, I met Dave Ed from Neurosis, and it was just this like who's who of West Coast heavier touring. So it, over the years, he went to UCSD in the music department. I appreciate and respect this guy's musical knowledge. Uh, so he basically, I asked him to produce the album with me. So he was there the whole time helping me write, taking those songs like Nazarene, for example, um, cutting it down. We, we kind of decided we weren't going to have any like extra drone stuff on this album. Right. We were going to really keep it like, we're going to be under 40 minutes. Uh, I threw the songs his way. He'd chop it up a little bit and say, hey, what if we, what if we did this? What if we, hey, I wrote a lead to go over this part. What do you think of the lead? So he had a big hand in it, um, and I really appreciate that. We were in a really short amount of time. Uh, anyway, once we got the whole thing tracked, uh, oh, st- stepping back, so this other guy, Jason Began, who goes by the electronic uh, named Viter, he's a New Hampshire guy, just one of these like total synth geniuses, more like the Aphex Twin, Square Pusher side of things. Brought all my tracks to him. We took all my sequences that I had kind of written, we mangled them up, ran, ran some of the MIDI stuff through some synths that he had that were, you know, just, and then I took that stuff back and chopped it up. And so, like, a lot of the kind of, like, in-between, like, like sequency tracks that you'll hear, well, I came up, J- Jason worked on that with me. Um, uh, and then, basically, we came back, mixed it. Uh, John Coda, who's my front of house guy, engineered the album and oh, okay. stayed late at night, you know, tracking the vocals with me. Um, then we passed it off to Kurt um, at God City, and then he made it sound like, you know, it took me a while to accept that he what he had done kind of on the album because I'm so used to kind of taking those mids out and making it sound more like a synth. Right, yeah. And he kind of took the reamp stuff that we did and made it a little bit more prominent. Um, and I think it made it sound a little bit more harsh 
and which was which was cool. It's yeah, just it when works. I got it back, I was like, I kept fighting him on it, and then I let other people listen to it. They're like, wait, this sounds way better than what you had. It just took me, you know. I was, well, you know, you have a different perspective. I was stuck on in it. my head for yeah. so long. So anyway, we're we're really stoked on it. Yeah, the record came out great. I think. Yeah, you know? thank and you. It's, like I said, there's a lot of, like for me, I focus on the mel- melodic parts of it too, just because it, it they sort of emerge out of this like, you know, desolation, and there's a lot of abrasive abrasiveness, and then it just goes into this sort of melody, and I think that's what really, because you know, there's a lot of industrial music out there where you're getting beat over the head constantly by this like relentless drum sequence yeah and like distorted vocals and just like this real intense you know sort of vibe but the record definitely has the same intensity but then there's like these flourishes of melody i think that really you know they really create like a unique sort of space for the songs i don't think i could i don't think i could do it without that i mean i I love the melodies are and actually i've been doing it kind of all along i think there's just with a little bit more clarity now yeah. Uh, I, I've, it's not like I decided I was going to write popular songs. I can go back and show you some times where maybe the production quality wasn't as good and where I feel like I was doing the same thing. It's just no one was listening. Right, uh, right. So I, I really don't feel like I was, uh, I don't know. Everybody says when bands like get a little bit more popular, they get more poppy, you know, because they want to get more fans. And I, I'm like, man, I'm, ha- I'm happy to get more fans, but I, I feel like it's been like that. This new record's on Relapse. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, uh, that, this is the first one on Relapse, right? First one, yep. And how'd you meet the, how did uh, you meet those guys? Uh, Orion uh, Landau up in... Yeah. Portland. Um, Portland, yep. Yeah. He knew Scott Flaster, who did his label Seventh Rule. Okay, yeah, I know was, that. Yep, yep, I remember them. Totally remember um, them. Fade and uh, Batillus was on there. Uh, and that's how I met him, through Fade and Batillus. Okay. And so Scott, I did, my, I did two records, and he re- re-released... Um, my drum machines so we did three records with him and then uh, when I was done with that I had gone to Housecore which is Phil Anselmo's label yep. for a jaunt for one record and then I was looking for a new label and Scott said hey you should you should talk to Relapse I think they'll be interested so I was funny the guy who I released records with passed me on to Orion and Relapse which is really cool Scott's Scott's the best yeah they're good people at Relapse you know I've worked with them in the past and yeah know, Orion's a great guy in general I mean yeah, they've been great. I mean, it's, I, I've never had so much support and and love from a label. And just I had, you know, I've reached out to a lot of labels, and you know, there was there was some interest, but not really like someone who said, "Hey, we really want to do this, and we've wanted to work with you for a while." I was like, that makes you feel like you want to work with them, you know? So I mean, they have so, a pretty uh, diverse roster at this stage. I mean, they got you know, you, have you yep. the bands like Nothing, but then they have bands like Pig Destroyer and. You know, Survive, the, the grind um, stuff that they have, and you know, it's all—it's a pretty much a very, very diverse roster. So it's, yeah, it, I, I'm psyched about that. I, I think some people, for a long time, it was straight metal, you know. Yeah. And I think they've—it's it, kind of hard for a label to do that these days with with the amount of like synth wave and electronic music that's around. But I also feel like fans in general are a little bit more open-minded than they were like in the '90s, you know, especially in the, you know, relapse is like a death grinds like that's where they made their mark you know the like earache butter. records and i think you know most a lot of people that listen to that music these days are aware of other stuff so it's easier to be more diverse these days you know what i mean yeah like even uh you, you know like housecore like phil anselmo is a prime example of a guy that a lot of times gets misunderstood by people and they think he's just this one thing but he has like a like a 
catalog, catalog knowledge of all different genres of music. I couldn't even keep talking to him. I could not keep up. I mean, with mu- musically, he, it was embarrassing, frankly. Yeah. Talking to him about music, he just decided let's talk about football or something. That <laughs> I actually could communicate. Well, boxing, with right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know much about boxing. Yeah, I'm like <laughs> soccer fan. He didn't like soccer, but we. Uh, his knowledge was, and I was impressed. I mean, he introduced me to so much good music. Um, so. so how's this tour going? It's going great. We're, I mean, f- for me, just, you can definitely tell uh, the, the, the relapse jump has, has really helped a lot. I mean, the turnout, the merch sales are something I haven't experienced before. So I'm feeling the love and I, it's, the, it's great. We'll, we'll do another one probably in the spring, um, cool. more of a headlining tour and, uh, but uh, so who who's on the tour with you now? We got the uniform and the body. Um, I did a collaboration. Body does a lot of crap. They did one with uh, Full of Hell. Actually, two oh, yeah. Full of mm-hmm. Hell. Yep. One with this girl Lingua Ignota. She's like a, a kind of up and coming, profound lore artist, and now uniform. So they're doing a sh- kind of a improvisational set that they do together. And then this band Intensive Care is opening. They're from uh, Toronto. Two piece bass. Uh, drums, good band. Is it a full U.S. tour? Yeah, oh, full cool. U.S. And then Street Sex will jump on the West Coast uh, side, um, another kind of industrial group. I just found out about them about two weeks ago. Um, we were we were on our way down to, uh, well, ultimately down to Atlanta, but we stopped in in Baltimore, and I was trying to catch Daughters play at oh, the nice. Metro Cafe. Uh, from a friend of mine was like works there, and uh, Street Sex played that show, but we got there just in time. To see everyone leave, yeah, <laughs> and the vans pull away, so I, I missed out. But my my buddy who worked there told me about this band Street Sex, and I uh, went yeah. onto Apple Music and checked them out, and they're they're pretty awesome, I think. Yeah, it's pretty unique stuff. I mean, I there's there's a lot of different influences in there, and their their artworks is awesome too. Uh, their whole shtick that they got going on. But. So we're here in New York, and you're in you're, you're based out of San Diego. So how much more of the tour is left? About half. About half. I think we've we got. Uh, this is the last. Sh- so the Uniform will now spend the holidays with their family and do some recording projects, and they'll meet us on the West Coast. So it's just Author and Punisher in the body doing, I don't know, ten shows across the U.S. now, um, which should be which should be pretty cool. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, Tristan, thanks for uh, spending time, and you know, good seeing you again. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> After twenty years. Yeah, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, thanks guys. You've been listening to Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio podcast. We'll be back next week, so be sure to subscribe and never miss out. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio via web, iOS, or Android for one of the best metal communities in the world, exclusive interviews and merch, and so much more.